in Australia, it's we're too harsh on failure. But it depends. I think it depends on the, the fa- there's different fa- types of failure. There's failure where you give it a crack, and things you just have bad luck. And there's failure where you where you're just stupid or criminal or fraudulent. So and there's two different types of failures there. I'm going to distinguish between the two. I think broadly speaking, if I look at someone, if I've got two resumes and hiring a senior person, if someone started their own business and given it a good crack and whatever, it hasn't worked, that's incredible. If I, if I see that, I'm, I'm always wanting to find someone who's done that versus someone who's worked at a bank their whole life. To me, that's uninteresting. I want to see someone who's got high risk tolerance, who's willing to create. Obviously, if they've run five businesses and they've all collapsed in a week, that's, that's not great. But if, some, if you've done two or three businesses and they've lasted a couple of years and for whatever reason they haven't survived, that to me is perfect person to hire. I'd love to. It's hard to hire them because they're usually starting the next business. But I think US has a similar attitude. Failure is tolerated. And it, and really, if you had a business, you've learned a lot of stuff. So I think the reason why US tolerates failure is they know that having a business doesn't mean you're guaranteed success. The next one, but you've had it, you've learned a lot. So today, my conversation is with Adam Schwab. He's a co-founder and CEO of Luxury Escapes, the largest luxury travel platform in Australia, and they are growing like crazy In this episode, we talk about Adam's early days and how the companies he built leapfrog him into what Luxury Escapes is today and the lessons learned along the way. We talk about exactly how the Luxury Escape model works and why COVID was such a blessing in disguise for them given how hard the travel industry got hit. Also, we talk about the importance of trying, giving it your best shot even with overwhelming odds and why it's so important to potential success understanding the mind of an entrepreneur, and much more. Adam was just a fun guy to speak to. He's a really fast talker, but I think people are going to learn a lot from this conversation, especially if you're trying to build something yourself and feeling a bit stuck. I think this conversation is one to listen to because you really learn how Adam thinks, how he works, but also the steps he's taken to build an empire like Luxury Escapes and what it means for him, and the rewards, and also the, the ups and downs associated with it. So I hope that if you're a budding founder or an entrepreneur, that you give this episode a listen. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Adam Schwab. All right, Adam, thanks for uh, thanks for joining. Really appreciate you coming on. Pleasure, Barry. Great to be on. Um, so I think uh, I think the most important question that I have uh, first and foremost is, according to the social, you're a barefoot marathon runner. So what is that all about? Because I'm really interested to hear about that story a little bit. Actually, on a, I heard a podcast last week, uh, How I Built This Podcast, which is I think everybody's favorite, second favorite pod after yours, obviously. Mm. They had a, a, a guest on who owns, who founded Zero Shoes and talked about that barefoot running story. Uh, we, my wife actually started barefoot running like a week before me, probably about 2011, after we both read Born to Run, an incredible book on uh, running in Mexico. Uh, so I read that. I've been having some skin splints, uh, ITB, just a random little sort of running injuries that everybody gets and stopped, started just trying not wearing shoes and uh, have had an injury since, so 12 years later. So it's unusual, but it's been really, really good for me anyway. 
How many marathons have you done? Just two full marathons and probably a dozen, maybe more halves, maybe 15 or 16 halves. Born to Run is an amazing book. And I think they have Born to Run 2 now, which was recently released. They do. That's right. Definitely. um, No. Yeah. They have, uh, I think Rich Roll interviewed them on his podcast and uh, they were asking some really, talking about some really cool stuff, barefoot running plus some more stuff, but good to hear that, uh, you know, exercise is definitely a a really cool part of your life, uh, especially when you're doing super busy stuff. Let's talk about some of the early days. I think there's, you know, you have a really interesting story. You have an interesting background, obviously, Um, you know, the context of the conversation I want to steer towards is really obviously luxury escapes is one thing but also getting there i think the journey towards there is really important and i think a lot of the audience members will resonate with a lot of your story ups and downs uh, but also the tenacity to actually go out there and do something for yourself so do you want to give just a quick lay of the land of your background of how you got into not just the business building side of things but just entrepreneurship in general and uh, maybe we can go from there and sort of uh, work our way through your story as we sort of get into what you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. So our story, so we start, I started the business with my, my best mate from school, a guy called Jeremy, who's still equal equal partner in almost everything we do, uh, certainly equal partner in, in Luxury Escapes. Um, we, we chat multiple times per day. So even though he lives in London now, but we're still very connected. So we, we started our our, our very first business we did together was just after we finished school, we sold our um, assignments, essentially. So you get to do these things for cats in Victoria. and do anymore, but these sort of big assignments. We we put ours on and we, we bought some smart people's cats and put them on a CD-ROM and sold them at a BCE fair back in 2000, back in, sorry, 1998. That was our very first business together. Um, and then we both got... I, I did law, Jez did um, finance honours. He went to work for a bank. I worked for a big law firm in, in Melbourne, a, a global firm now. Uh, and I had a great time there. But Jez was always wanting to do something for himself. This is well before being an entrepreneur was cool. This is back in 2004. So entrepreneurs weren't cool at all. It was really kind of weird to, to do your own thing. Everybody wants to be a banker or a consultant or a lawyer or whatnot. Uh, now it's very different. Now there's a, a well-trodden path to being a, a founder and it's actually considered probably better. But back then it wasn't that way at all. It's hard to think back to 19, 18 years ago. The paradigm was very different. But Jez is always very good at thinking differently and he understood the benefits from a tax perspective, from a wealth-growing perspective of having your own business. So he's very very much a contrarian thinker, which which has really been a benchmark to do over the last 20 years. But Jez was pushing me to do a business. We didn't really know what we wanted to do. And we had, I was a lawyer, so we had no real experience at it. We'd work jobs like it. Um, cinemas and supermarkets and nightclubs and all that kind of stuff. We never had had that one proper job. But anyway, we, we, so we were, we just wanted, just particularly wanted to do something. I was, I was happy to sort of play along. So we're looking for an idea, but there was nothing that was pressing. As it happened, uh, a few months earlier, actually, I'd been, I'd been skiing in a place called Whistler in Canada. And Whistler's got, it's really hard to get accommodation there. So one year, I've been there three years. The the first year I stayed on, which we slept on the floor. The second year, um, I slept in a loft, which was about that high, uh, with another guy with eight people in one, a two-bedroom place. 
And the third year, I, I actually rented a one-bedroom and then effectively sublet it. To, I, I lived there and I had 700 people in there, so I, I, didn't have, I didn't have to pay much because we had so many people in there. Uh, so that, that, that was sort of a bit of background. And as it happened, we noticed there was businesses in some, operating in, in St Kilda and some of Melbourne that effectively rented apartments to hire or to backpackers. Uh, and backpackers or, who are in Melbourne or in, in any city for more than a couple of weeks need it's sort of fall between two chairs. So you can't stay in a, you don't want to stay in a hostel for three months. It's, it's expensive and it's frankly no good. You can't afford a hotel, obviously, nor would you want to. And you can't really get your own lease because the leases are generally a year minimum and, and people weren't staying for a year. So there was this market that just wasn't being addressed. And we sort of, we noticed that uh, and we thought we can probably do that. I'd have that business, not the business, I had that apartment in Canada that I sublet. So I sort of had an idea that you could sublet and kind of cover some costs. I thought, why don't we try this? So I went around and bought some second-hand furniture. I just was in somewhere overseas at the time. Literally went around my dad's trailer and got the trading post and paid two grand to buy a bunch of second-hand furniture and furnish one apartment. And very much, we'd never, other than when we lived overseas, we'd, we were still living at home in, in Melbourne. So it was our first time we rented the property. So to go through that, sort of learn how to rent a property and furnish it, and get all that stuff done, and we did that. Obviously, it's not, not hard just to, to learn it. The real challenge for us in that business from the start was how, how do you get tenants because that's, like any business, the supply is generally the easy part, not always, but usually the easy part, and demand's the hard part. And there was no, this is no exception. Anybody can furnish and rent an apartment, pretty much anyone. The challenge is getting people to pay a margin and, and creating the value for, for customers. So, you know, we, we went around to internet cafes. Internet cafes back then were a thing. So we went around to internet cafes and uh, put these, this sort of poster, which I had my phone number down the bottom, so people could call me. And we did, and we, we went around to internet cafes every day for couple of weeks or a month, had an open house and, and was able, we were able to rent out our first apartment to a bunch of guys from England. We realised that renting to a bunch of guys, in, in hindsight, wasn't the best idea, but they were, they were good guys and we, we learned that lesson eventually. But rented the apartment and we basically just made a margin. And I think our very first apartment was making us like 20 grand a year, which for minimal work, once you set it up, it's kind of in. So we thought there's a kernel of a business there. Uh, and then we did a second apartment, a second court beta test, as, it, as we call it these days. We were still, I was still a free Jess was, I think, had designed for ANZ then, but, but uh, I was still working, did that second one, and that went well. Although what we didn't realise is we were um, effectively renting them going to summer, which is the absolute peak time for backpack. Everybody comes to Melbourne and Sydney in mm-hmm. November, December. What we didn't realise is come sort of May, June, things change a lot, and you have to scrounge around trying to feel like you drop pricing and all that kind of stuff. So we learned the first lesson about having pricing. But back then, we obviously didn't realise this. So we did our first two apartments, was going gangbusters, and then in April, I took leave of absence, which was eventually like a, a sabbatical for my law firm. Basically said to them, I want to give this a try. Everybody looked at me like I was crazy, uh, but I'll give it a try. And if it didn't work, I'll go back in six months. Uh, anyway, tried it. we started rolling out apartments, effectively cash flowing ourselves. So we had 50 or 60 grand saved, which we used to cash flow the first half dozen. And then we used the profits from those apartments to cash flow the next one. So we... And we borrowed about 50 grand for our parents, but generally it was all self-funded. And that's sort of been our story. We were bootstrapped in all our businesses until very recently. Uh, so we've always used profits to reinvested profits, paid ourselves very little or nothing, uh, never really used debt, um, never really had external equity, and just sort of funded from profits sort of the whole way through. Uh, but that was our first business. Took a leave of absence, just started rolling it out, got to sort of 50 apartments, and um, we were away. Was the uh, that whole you – know, obviously you – Went to Whistler. You you were doing something that you wouldn't have thought you would be doing in terms of starting a business. That inspiration 
for starting that backpacking business. What was the impetus for you to actually do something? Because it's one thing having the idea, because everyone has ideas, but why did you decide to sort of go out there and actually execute on it and taking the action? Obviously, you know, you mentioned your, your buddy, Jez, who helped you get over the hump. But was there something within you yourself that you were thinking, hmm, if I don't do this now, I'll regret it? Was there any sort of self-projection into the future about what your life could look like that made you get over the hump? What were some of those factors? It's a great question. Um, definitely a lot was Jess pushing, and Jess is great at that, and he, he'll get an idea and he'll push it. Not always. His ideas absolutely aren't always right, but... No one has 100% right, but when he, when he gets the thematic right, he generally is, is pretty good strategically, very good strategically. And he was certainly great at pushing. And it was, this is obviously, the concept wasn't around. It was a classic two-way door uh, using the Chef Bezos, famous Chef Bezos line. If this didn't work, that's why we took a leave of absence. If it didn't work, I'll just, just, just go back. There was almost zero risk. Um, as you know, the best time to start a business is when you don't have these commitments. If, if I'm starting a business now with a wife and two kids, two lovely kids, and a house and a mortgage. It's much harder. Uh, when I'm 24, living at home, almost zero expenses. But we were cognizant that this was the best time to start it, even though it wasn't in fashion to start a business. We, neither of us idiots. Jez was probably better at pushing me, but I was, I was um, not stupid enough to know that this was a great time to do it. And it was, it was a two-way door before we knew, we knew what two-way door. It was a classic two-way door. Could have easily gone back. And the way we started as well, we started it while I was still working at Orville. We started two pilot apartments. You know, right. So it was a classic, again, side hustle before side hustles were invented. And I don't know if we're in this area believe in side hustles. And I think, sort of, look at my two rules of, of, of starting businesses is never, don't force an idea. Don't do an idea because you want to start a business because starting a business is cool. Back then, the, that concept didn't exist. Uh, but don't, we, we founded that business because we saw a real need. We had friends who were from the UK staying in a terrible apartment. We thought, well, there's a real demand, a real need. This. And you saw this in everyday life. We didn't, we didn't come up, sit one day in, in, a, in a bedroom writing ideas for businesses. We saw an idea that we thought we saw a, a problem and then it's solving. And secondly, when we saw, when, when you see a problem, throw everything into it, put real skin in the game. And that, when we took, when I took leave of absence, I, I was getting, I wasn't getting paid much. I was getting paid maybe 60 grand a year at, at the law firm. But it was, back then it was a bit, and that was real. The real skin was my time, so and reputation. So both Jess and I stopped our lives in other respects and put 100% into this business. We, we, Jess's dad had an accounting firm, a little accounting firm. We had this tiny little office. We set up an office, and we treated we took it seriously. We took this as our, our first shot. If it didn't work, we could go back. It was a two-way door, but we didn't, we didn't keep it a side hustle for long. We made it a, a full hustle, and that was... That was without doing that, we never would have done what we did. And, and we kept pivoting through the years. We talk about the rest of the story, but we kept pivoting because Jess kept pushing. Let's do this, let's do that. And we could see, and um, you sort of, and, and the beauty of a, a great founder relationship has complementary skills. And, and Jess was always the sort of pusher and the strategy guy, and always was the operator who could look around corners and make sure things weren't going wrong. You kind of need those complementary skills, whether it's tech and sales or whatever it is. We had that, and we have had, have and had, and still have those complementary skills that. Um, we know, we know we're not going to get everything right, but you need to get the directional stuff right. And founding a business is an asymmetric bet. Things pay off 10,000 to one. You've got to take that bet. If you're not going to take that bet, then don't start a business, work for a corporate, whatever, be a consultant, work at a furniture store, it doesn't matter. But if you're willing to make asymmetric bets, knowing that some of those bets don't work, then, then start a business. But you've got to understand that some of the bets don't work. Yeah, no, I agree. 
the notion of like starting that business, the asymmetric misalignment as well is definitely a great impetus. But also once you do do it, you hopefully get enough momentum and a bit of a flywheel effect that you can start to reap the rewards, but then have that nice loop back, a feedback loop going, and then you can start to really hone in and, and continue to uh, build out the business. Did you feel when you were doing this and building this out, um, not just with luxury, but with the backpacking business and all the other pursuits in between, whereas this ever notion that, look, you know, this is just so much work that I just can't do this anymore because of building a business is tough, right? And yes, there is that definitely upside of down the road, there may be a massive payoff or something, you know, rewarding will come, but it's so it's the delayed gratification. So was there ever a moment where we all felt like, well, maybe I just would have been better going back to my corporate job and being a lawyer because this is just too tough uh, for me. Or was it like, well, I need to continue doing this because this is exciting and this is fun. I definitely never thought of going back to being a lawyer. Lawyers, being a lawyer, A is far more work. I was doing all nighters. I was getting doing hundreds of hours, hundred hours a week like, for very, for relatively little money. And then the work is horrific. So I certainly never thought of going back to that. Um, it was, uh, running a business is much more fun as well. And especially coming from, it's all relative. I worked at a cinema, which I did when I was 19. That's, that's a lot of fun. So but I was coming from a, a non-fun job. So, so that, that was never an issue for us when we, we had each other and we go play footy with Macquarie guys on a Wednesday. So we still had, and I, I still had lots of friends who worked in the city. So we still had a lot of the benefits of, of working in a big firm whilst not working in a firm in a way. Um, but yeah, so. We never, if I think back to the early days of the business, the very early days was eight. We used to go and kick a footy at four o'clock in the afternoon because you didn't have enough to do. So mm. the, in the early days, of business wasn't that. Then the, probably the hardest, the, we look to the sort of luxurious, the beginning of pre-luxurious case. So we had a few online businesses. We had a business called deals.com, Zupon before that was our first online business. Those early days were, were certainly tougher. I did nine years without a day off, essentially. I'd be doing customer support on Five, four, five hours every weekend, each day. Did heaps of cards. Did sort of every job in the business. And those early two, three, four years were, were, were tough, but no tougher than working as a lawyer. And I was sort of used to it. Um, and my wife was with us, with us in the business, and she was working, so we'd be on holiday in Hong Kong or whatever, and we'd be in the club lounge and uh, both pounding away at, till eight o'clock at night because this is what we did. Um, you don't think anything different of it. And it's your money, it's your business, so you, you sort of do what you need to do. I, I don't think there are too many founders who. Have had a couple of tough years. Maybe you get lucky, you raise money, whatever. You can hire a great team, but certainly bootstrap found. And we were because we were bootstrap, we never raised money. You're trying to save money at every turn, which invariably involves not hiring, not hiring super good people initially, or certainly not hiring super expensive people initially, and doing everything, trying to do everything yourself. So, yeah, there was it was a long. Even now, there aren't many days I don't work. Now, if I'm on a holiday, I'm still um, laptop's always with me, my phone's always with me. I'm answering messages 18 hours a day. So it's 17 hours a day. So I'm, I'm always on. But to me, I, I find, I'm sure people, a lot of people you speak to, I find work itself cathartic and, and relaxing. I, I don't have an issue doing work. I think you need to love the detail, love the work. Uh, and I, I'm lucky enough that I do. It doesn't matter if I'm sweeping up leaves in the garden or, or answering customer service emails or, or whatever. Um, I kind of like getting the job done well. So it's... I don't find it bad. It's a, it is, it is sort of a challenge in the early days. Yeah. 
that uh, that's something that's it's very nuanced but it's very important and i think having the ability to do something that you love or that you find exciting isn't work at that point it's just part of your lifestyle and that's really the the tipping point for a lot of people when they realize like this isn't no longer a nine to five gig anymore it was never supposed to be a nine to five gig you know this is a lifestyle that i've incorporated into my life and you know, whatever will come my way, I don't mind doing it because that's what I signed up for. But also, you know, you're building the business at the same time. So I think there's definitely a testament to doing something for yourself because it's exciting, it's fun. And then you have the chance of, you know, doing something great, uh, but also enjoying it and not having to feel like you're slugging it out at the office or at the cubicle uh, because you're working for someone else. And I feel like that's sort of the mentality that a lot of people uh, sort of need to get in, but it's also very tough because there's, you know, taking those risks are also very hard at the same time um, and making sure that you de-risk yourself as well. And and you mentioned a few de-risk um, activities you can do there as well. I definitely want to get back into the that down the road and segue into sort of advice for young people towards the end, but let's sort of continue the conversation with towards luxury escapes. You know, after uh, the backpacking thing, what happened then? You did that well. Did you sell that off? Did you um, sort of unwind that? What was the story after the backpacking? Yeah, we just kept on running it. Uh, as part of it, we actually morphed the backpacking stuff to a, a corporate business. So the backpacking stuff rolled off. There's a bit of regulatory sort of risk around that backpacking business. Uh, so sort of 2007, 8, 9, we started building up our corporate apartments business. So classic three months, someone working in IT, needing an apartment, that rented apartment went to it for them. We actually still have one apartment left, it got to sort of 50 or 60. We kept, end up, but as part of that, we we bought a half a dozen properties because the property, the rental market in Melbourne was getting tired. We bought half a dozen properties. We we used 95% leverage and that was when the GFC was happening. We just were uncomfortable having debt. Um, it was the only time we really had debt secured against properties. We ended up selling the properties for million dollar windfall profit because the properties went up, we painted them, we put the new car or whatever. Uh, so we made had that million dollar windfall profit, which is more money than we'd ever made. We were at 28 at the time, so more money than we ever made in, in the actual business was making a couple hundred grand a year. So it was okay, but it wasn't life-changing. And this neither was the million, but the million was a really nice filler and it effectively gave us our own sort of seed fund in a way. So we we wanted we knew the corporate apartments business wasn't scalable really you could scale it nationally, but it'd be tough. Even scaling it domestically is hard because every time you set up an apartment, we're putting together the furniture and making the beds. It, 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 it was hard work. So we wanted a scalable, scalable online business. We could see online was really taking off at that time. So it kind of made sense. We were young. We sort of understood it. Uh, we saw our original idea we had was um, a business, effectively a business like uh, Dimmy or Booker Restaurant, where you book restaurants online, essentially. Mm-hmm. We, wanted, we had we, Our idea had a discount element to it. Uh, we started doing that in 2009, 10. Then we saw the whole Groupon craze happen and always Groupon knockoffs. Groupon was the first business, the quickest business hit a billion dollars turnover. I think it was point, at one point it was valued at 26 billion US or some insane value. It's now worth 200 million or something. So it's basically gone to zero. But uh, at that point in 2010, it was huge. We saw Groupon thought, well, this actually is a pretty good idea. We'll pivot to that. Started doing that and then we clearly weren't the only ones in Australia to see that. So the Catch of the Day boys who came channels and us later saw the saw that. Uh, the guys from Jump on it saw it. Uh, our later partners, um, Josh and Anton, who created Ufa, saw it. Spreets guys saw it, who we bought a business from and know very well. So there's a whole community of, of ex-group buying people. But everybody saw this, this craze. Everybody jumped in. It looked amazing for the first 
six months to a year, um, this incredible viral growth. Everybody was talking about group buying. We realised, we were probably the first to realise because we were closest to it, that there were some real problems with that business. One problem was unit economics just didn't work uh, in that you, you'd pay 50 bucks, 60 bucks to acquire a customer who'd spend 50 bucks, you get 20 bucks margin, but they may not buy again because they had a bad experience because you didn't control the end-to-end -end customer experience because we relied on restaurants, massage places, whatever, to fulfil the experience. So sometimes they were great, sometimes they were terrible. That was a problem with that. The other, um, and the other, so the other problem was the unit economics and customer satisfaction. So that were the two major issues. We realised though that as part of that business, we did something about tra dabbling in travel, and we knew nothing about travel. Never worked in travel business. Never travelled five star. Um, they'd done some trips or whatever to Thailand and stuff, but didn't really have a clue what we were doing in terms of travel. But people came to us, and we saw other businesses starting to do some travel stuff. Thought well, actually, the problems we have with local small basket size customer satisfaction don't exist with travel. Because A, travel basket size is closer to two grand, so you've got some really good unit economics. And, and B, hotels really care about the hospitality customer experience. There's A, they're in their hospitality business, and B, there's something called TripAdvisor and other review sites. And if hotels do a bad job, they get smashed and, the, and people don't go to them again. So hotels really care about the end-to-end -end experience, much more so than a, a mum and pa restaurant who sort of cares but sort of doesn't care and doesn't have sophistication to really know how to serve a customer. So there's a couple, there's a couple of reasons may travel uh, in the end, a much better sustainable business. We still have the experiences business. It's really part of the travel business now and it goes really well together. But as, as a rule, travel business looked like the best business and we just grew that business gradually over time. So probably should have invested more quickly in it. Uh, we had a, another sort of later stage co-founder guy called Mark and Josh as well, who, who we brought his business over, who, who were really instrumental in, in helping us with the travel business. A lot of our great early stage employees are great in the travel business. Um, so there's a really a core team of core ten of us who, who really driving that business forward, uh, and we just had a, a great run. Had a lot of luck. We discovered newspaper ads were a great source of getting customers at a negative negative CPA essentially, and we just started learning learning the business. Uh, and we had no idea about how how the big travel business worked. Still, we were real outsiders, and ultimately that was probably our biggest our biggest benefit in that we're competing with a lot of legacy travel businesses that haven't changed that model for 30, 40 years, these wholesale models that don't really work. And then we, obviously they have the online travel agents or OTAs like Booking.com and Expedia, and these guys weren't evolving either. So it left this really interesting market that we could continue to learn, evolve and grow our business, whereas everybody else was kind of just on their heels. What is a, what's an OTA? Online travel agent. So Booking.com mm -hmm. is the, the biggest. Uh, Expedia is the second biggest. Citrix is the third biggest. Essentially the big marketplaces of Travel. So if you want to go anywhere, Booking.com probably has it, and you can reserve it for for no money down. You give them a credit card, and you rock up there and pay. Uh, and so they're they're essentially a, a distribution channel for hotels. Hmm. So what was the is that the stuff you just mentioned was that the precursor to what luxury escapes is today, and learning sort of the craft of the travel industry, learning about how that operated, working with the OTAs. Right. Obviously, there was a lot of lessons learned through that period. And as you started to sort of scale the business and you start to sort of see, well, maybe the unit economics can work, you know, did you feel like this was something that could be much bigger? Because no one knew maybe at that time that something like COVID would hit at that point. And so when you, you know, notwithstanding COVID, but also just focusing on the travel industry itself, did you notice that there was going to be a, this really massive interest for luxury travel um, because obviously people are trying to sort of get out and go to these places, but also 
be uh, able to afford a, a lot of these services and experiences at a reasonable price. What was the demand like? Rather than just being a, a regular standard travel company, having that luxury level on top of it and that brand, did that really add um, you know a positive uh, uh, sort of spin towards you what you were building? You give us too much credit for having a plan. So we we just followed the followed the customer demand, followed the money. So. We had this group buying business. We saw that travel was working well and that luxury travel was working well. And we started doing effectively flash sales for, for travel. So our business is really based on incremental spend. So different between us and we're talking about OTA. So OTA is largely distributed existing demand. So you want to go to the Hilton in Zurich, you go to booking.com and you'll book the Hilton in Zurich. You're going there anyway and booking just help facilitate that transaction, which is fine. Um, what we do is very different. So 97% of our customers weren't planning on going to the hotel they went to until they came to Luxury Escape. So we inspire new travel and we change customer behaviour. 70% of our customers weren't even planning to go to the country. They booked till we told them about it. So we are quite different to an OTA. We have a part of our business that's a bit more similar, but our our initial business, our flash sales business, is, is quite different. And that we'll, we'll work with a limited number of properties at one time, so 40 or 50 properties at one time, and usually only a couple per region max, sometimes just one per region. So we have... We've got Scott the Hard Rock Hotel in London. It's the only property we have in London on Flash at the moment. We can do sort of one at a time. Maybe Bali might have two or three. But we have limited inventory. Uh, and the beauty of that is customers who want to go somewhere, they, a lot of, often our, our customers just want a beach holiday. They don't necessarily, they don't necessarily have to go to the, mm-hmm. um, the Grand High in Nusa Dua. But if they see it there and they ring, they, oh, this looks like a great hotel, I'll go there. But if they see a great place in Thailand or Vietnam or Maldives, they'll, they'll just as likely to change that, that buying intent to something else because, A, we, we make our hotels look amazing and showcase them and provide lots of information. But also, we find far better pricing. So when you look at OTAs, pretty much every pretty much every channel globally in travel is, is basically the same price. Occasionally, you get some rogues out there, but usually what you play on, on Booking.com is the same as Expedia, it's the same as Flight Center, it's the same as everywhere, uh, and the same as the hotel itself. What we do in our flash deals, because they're only available for two weeks behind a a wall, so to speak. It's free to join, but you've got to sign up to see it. Because they're protected and they're only two-week specials and there's um, a degree of uh, there's, there's a degree of um, uh, exclusiveness about them, uh, what happens there is people change their behaviour, so we get these great packages. So we won't, generally we won't put a deal up unless it's 30% off, and often it's 40% better pricing than so our customers get incredible value, which, which is obviously great, um, and our hotels get incremental revenue, which is fantastic for them. So we create a win-win-win uh, for, for the hotel, for the customer, and we just sit in the middle there. So that's a really lucky position to be in. There aren't that many businesses that create win-win-wins, and we're, we're about to furnish that with our, with our flash business. We to create demand out of thin air. So we increase the pie. We don't steal business necessarily from other other place in the sector, we create extra travel because we're able to lower the price and, and increase accessibility. Can you sort of go back, because I'm really fascinated about the business model, and you mentioned that win-win-win. Can you sort of just explain a little bit about the model that you're working with? Because you mentioned OTAs in there, you mentioned working with creating these flash deals. I don't know, I'm sort of uh, naive here to think that you're reaching out to a lot of these uh, vendors, these hotels, these service providers in each country to, to work alongside. Is that correct? How do you manage the team? Because there's so many deals, they're so amazing, so many amazing deals. And 
everyone, all of those deals are curated, which is also even much more valuable. And it's not just being someone like me gets given an experience based on my recommend, on my needs, on my preferences and style. How do you build that out to make sure that everyone gets their own style type of experience on their end? A couple of things there. So I think the beauty of our, our model is we consult with hotels. We have a big team of 25, 30 people who are mm-hmm. consulting, seeing the hotels every day and trying to structure packages that work. So each, every hotel, every package is different, and we might run a, a pack. Every year, we will, we will, we will, not every year, but we'll often rerun hotel packages once a year, and we'll change it year on year because things have changed. So we'll speak to a hotel, and, and the beauty, there's multiple reasons why we make money for hotels. One is we move lots of inventory really quickly in volume. So we'll, we might be a, a hotel might make get less money per room for, for us on a what we call average daily rate basis. Uh, that's that's one. That's probably the only negative. The positive is they get, they're filling empty rooms. So rooms that would almost certainly be, we know for, almost for sure they're, they're going to be zero. No one's going to be in them. So even if we gave a hundred bucks for the room, like two, three, four, five thousand, whatever it is, hotels are we're not competing against another seller. We're competing against an empty room, which is one really big benefit. Second benefit is we never just sell the bed in the room. We sell breakfast and dinners and day spa, all this other stuff, transfers, all this other stuff that hotels love selling because it's high margin. So if, you've got a, if you're a hotel, you've got a restaurant, you've got staff, you've got food, you've got build the restaurant, whatever. Your margin's very high on that product. It's about 60 70% margin versus room, which is a little bit, bit lower. So if, if they can, because we force package in most cases, uh, and our customers love that as well, so it really does create that win-win. Hotels can sell higher-yielding product and give a discount on that to customers. Customers still get a great deal because they've got to eat, eat breakfast anyway. So it creates that real win-win. It stops customers maybe going off-site or, or not eating or whatnot, but gives you a great experience, and hotels can can juice their yield. Third thing is our average booking window is six months out. So hotels love that. They're allowed to – effectively comes an early bird special in many cases. So whilst we do allow people to buy it, Next week, the majority of people just like to lock stuff in because this is how people travel and people buy from us and customers buy from us. So, again, another win-win. Customers like buying early, get a great price, and hotels can lock in that base now, that base inventory and can yield up on other channels. So they'll, they'll increase that price on OTAs and flights and whatever else. So, again, hotels benefit, our customers benefit, creates a win-win. Uh, third thing we do for a hotel is we just create great visibility for them. We've got millions and millions of, of members worldwide. We send out our EDM. And suddenly that, that hotel brand or that hotel specifically is, is shown to millions of people, and that's got real value. So we create, we can actually act like, act like a PR um, for our hotel partners. So lots of great reasons hotels actually make real money out of us, and often far, far more money, generally always more, far, far more money than we make. So we'll charge effectively a margin, like any business, uh, but the hotels are making a lot more than we are, and that's how, how we think it should be. Hotels have capital investors. We want to make our partners lots and lots of money, which is great. We're going to save our customers lots and lots of money, and we know if we're doing that, which is typically creating happiness, which which works really well. The uh, you mentioned about the customer experience. You mentioned about building the team. You know, there's a lot of components when building something like this, especially when it becomes more global and more expansive. You know, what what is your thoughts around um, you know making sure that you continue to develop the utmost quality to the customer. I think obviously the brand is one thing and that's sort of is the sort of the top of the funnel that brings people in. But once you've got them in, you know, has it been difficult to scale that customer experience uh, with so many people now um, versus when you were smaller? Or does that actually get easier because now you have the systems, the processes in place? Because I feel like something like travel is very, very sensitive, especially when 
I'm going out there. You don't want to be going to a hotel that looks beautiful and then eventually rock up and then it's run down, it's dilapidated, service is bad. How do you make sure that the, the hotels actually do what they say they're going to do and then you promote that and with complete transparency to the, to the consumer? Two points in there that are interesting. So well, the point one is called hotel quality. Um, right. That's a really big well, one. We have an NPS of sort of 70 plus. So vast majority of our customers have an incredible experience. It's always going to be, because we don't control the end to end, we don't operate the hotels ourselves. You're always going to get the odd disappoint, disappointing result. Mm. Look at our reviews are up there with the highest in the sector. And if you look at our product review or trust poll, it's at 4.3, 4.4, which is pretty high. Your bookings are expected like 1.1. Whatever it is. So, we do a much better job in the marketplaces because they have no control over anything. They just sell everything and it is what it is, which is, is what it's fine. Um, no criticism of them. That's just the platform they run. We run a different platform. So, people do have high expectations, and not we, and there are some very rare instances where, where you don't meet, meet the hotel, doesn't meet the expectations. We'll, I think the beauty of there's a couple of things there. One is we have, we have there's a hotel, I won't say where it is, the hotel we found out. We actually visited the hotel, so we'd sold. Uh, a few, some packages to it. We visited it afterwards. It had gone downhill post-COVID. We actually contacted the customers and, and refunded them all or offered them a new hotel. Most of the book flights, they, they just changed hotels to another one, which is great. So we were proactive there. But you don't, that doesn't, we don't always have that ability to, because we work with thousands of hotels, we can't check every single one every single day. So there are some that, that slip through. What we try and do is be as proactive as possible with our customers. So when, it, when you go on a luxury escape, we send you an SMS saying, here's our customer contact line. Please let us know any issues. We'll solve it while you're there. Don't wait till you get back because we have to pay the hotel. So the worst situation is when someone says they're hating it, doesn't tell us, gets back, then tells us we have to just pay the hotel because they've finished their stay. So that, that can be frustrating. But as long as someone tells us, we can we can speak to the GM or the head of sales or whoever it is and usually get them upgraded or fixed or whatnot. So we're, we're, we're in that unique position where we... We have the the range and the pricing in many ways of the sort of big online players. We have the the high touch of a boutique travel agent. So we got, we think we're the best of both worlds. So you can book through luxury escapes, knowing uh, we'll, we can jump on and act on your behalf. We have we have significant sway with our hotel partners. We generally move a lot of volume for our partners, and they'll do the right thing by our customers because we'll ask them for it. So it's a nice sweet spot there. But in terms of sort of point two, call it the customer service point. Uh, we. We invest pretty heavily, and obviously, as you get to scale, you can you can simply just have better customer service because we have, we now have twenty four seven, three sixty five days a year. So there's two types of businesses: there's boutique travel agents that probably want to do that but can't because they don't have the resource. So if you book through a high end travel agent, that they're incredible, these guys, but there's only one of them, so they can't answer the phone at three a.m. at night because the human human being can't be up twenty four seven, three sixty five days. We've got a whole team spans the globe. Most well, most of our customer service team based in Australia. We have some people in the US. Who can answer overnight? So we have full, and we have some in Australia who answer overnight as well. So we have full twenty four seven. You call two AM on Christmas Day, you'll get a response. So, which is really unusual. So we do have a really high touch customer, which is expensive, uh, but we understand the importance of, of maintaining customer loyalty. Our repeat rate is super high. Only about twenty percent of our less than twenty percent of sales, actually ten percent of our sales, comes from paid marketing. So we tend to get a lot of organic sales, a lot of repeat sales, a lot of referrals. So, yes, there's a cost, but the cost is essentially as much as the marketing cost as an operational cost. So that's sort of point two. Uh, and point three is we have really evolved our product suite. So we were a flash sales business till COVID. We knew we had to become more of a marketplace, so not a full OTA. So we're never going to be Booking.com. We're never going to beat Booking.com. They're a $100 billion business, an incredible business at that. But Booking.com can't do everything. 
And so what we did was we created a curated marketplace during COVID. So instead of having zero or one property in London, you can now type in London in our search box and you'll always see 20 or 30 great properties, heavily curated. There's a thousand five-star hotels in London. We didn't want to show this that thousand hotel paddocks of choice. We still heavily curate. So you know that stuff on Luxury Scapes has been chosen, selected, curated. So we'll do the hard work for you and you can pop in and just choose Oh, I'm staying in Soho, I'm going to book this hotel. I'm going to book hotel. I'm staying in Mayfair, I'll book here. I'm staying in Shoreditch, I'll book here. So we try and make sure we give a nice broad range of generally four to six stars. So you could pay 150 bucks a night, you could pay $10,000 a night. It depends on, on mm-hmm. what you want. Uh, so we want to try and curate to the point where we give great options for everyone, uh, but not so there's so much choice that they can't decide. So we've really evolved the business over COVID. Now, almost probably 40% of our sales are what we call marketplace sales versus flash sales. So it's quite a uh, a different product. So both hotels, but the marketplace is a much lower discount, but always available. So you still get your free breakfast potentially or your nightly cocktail or whatever, or, or, or a discount. Uh, but it's not as deeply discounted as those super short-term flash sales. So it's really different things to different people. A lot of people are, are happy just to book for, I'll get a free breakfast, still better value than booking.com, but I know it's available now and I can reserve it, uh, versus the flash special, which are amazing, but aren't always applicable to everyone because we, we sort of constantly change what we have there. So that's a good dovetail into the impact of COVID. And it, I would be remiss to not mention COVID, especially considering the industry that Luxury Escapes is in. So how did COVID impact you guys? And obviously, for the most part, COVID really obliterated the travel industry for a lot of people, especially the airlines, the hotels. But, uh, yeah, definitely interesting to know a bit more about how you adjusted because What's interesting to me is the adaptation that businesses can make and the best ones are able to adapt very quickly to um, exogenous factors out of their control. So obviously luxury escapes are doing amazing now, but I think that during the COVID time, there probably was a lot of stuff that you had to pivot. There was a few changes you had to make. Maybe you didn't, I'm not sure. So how did you sort of deal with the whole COVID fiasco? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good point you make. <clears throat> COVID was a blessing and a curse. Uh, I think more of a blessing, or absolutely more of a blessing for us. So clearly, EBITDA wasn't great. We had to do our first couple of raise. We did towards the end of COVID because that balance sheet needed the help. But, but generally, whilst the first, especially the first few months were super tough, it created a huge opportunity for us. Uh, and the entire industry was zagging and we chose to zig. So everybody was firing people left, right and centre. We increased ourselves by 50% over COVID. So it was... It was, in a way, that caught the ballsy move, but we could see COVID, we were also very lucky. So lucky in one respect, we didn't have to refund everyone because our customers, were, customers A, loved us, and B, had bought packages, and we weren't selling a commoditized product, so customers are happy to leave a product with us. We had some people who needed a refund for various their own reasons, which was fine, but it was probably some 10% of customers. So most customers happy to leave with the cash with us. So whilst we were losing money, because obviously your, your sales go down, we, we didn't have a cash flow issue. Uh, that was sort of point one. Point two is because we had a decent Australian local domestic business, we could pivot to domestic Australia, and our US business never really stopped. In fact, our US business grew, has grown 6x since COVID. So we were really lucky that our business model naturally would adapt. So our revenue certainly dropped, but dropped 50%, not, not 99%, like most of our sort of other friends in the industry. So we had a lot of luck there that other travel businesses didn't have. It allowed us to be really bullish when everybody else, if we were on our heels and everybody else was on their toes. So that was as much luck as good management, uh, but that's how we, we are we're pretty sort of aggressive founder-led business. We very supportive board, uh, 
So we had a, and we weren't public, so we didn't have shareholders who were panicking. We didn't have to raise, urgently raise capital at a discount, however, with the devaluation. So we had a lot of luck along the way. So then we can ignore the luck element, but we took that luck and we we rolled the dice, and we're more than double pre-COVID now. At start out, we got five twenty team members. We had two hundred before. Completely changed how the business works. We've got this great marketplace that's growing every day. You can buy cruises online from us now. You can buy tours online from us now. Thousands of them, um, thousands of hotels, not just fifty. So. We have a much, much better business now, much more durable, much more resilient, much more consistent. We used to sort of be very up and down with nature of flash. We're now now much more consistent, consistently profitable for almost a year now. So we've been super lucky that we're able to to grow the business. We were able to raise capital in sort of late 21, early 22. Most of that capital was actually secondary, not primary. So most of us shareholders getting liquidity at a much better valuation than pre-COVID. So in every respect, we had a, a bizarrely a very good pandemic. We were super lucky with the sort of uh, don't ignore the fact that we we had a lot of good fortune, uh, but we worked we worked pretty hard as well. But but without that good fortune, hard work and and whatever else is, is meaningless. So we took that luck and we made the most of it. Uh, we got, and we're able to. And I know, interestingly, when COVID happened, I was in many ways a non-exec. So I was out of out of the CEO role. We had another person running the business, and during COVID, sort of six months later, I came back into the business and with a really sort of new lease on executive life. It was great to have time off. It was it was super enjoyable. It was pre-COVID, so I could travel for, for my month. spent most of that year traveling with a family with two and four-year-old kids. So it was incredibly well timed for me personally. Got to come in and, and my first focus was how do we how do we skill up the team to, to become a superstar team? We had a, a great team. How do we make it a super a great team? So we had sort of half our exec team has, has been with us the whole time. We sort of Grew by another sort of four or five incredible new execs. Uh, about to hire another one who, who looks, who's fantastic, who I've known for many years. Uh, so really upskilled team to a, to an A plus team. I think one of the best teams, not just in travel, one of the best exec teams in the country. We've sort of proved that with our performance. I don't think there's been any. I don't think there've been many. Or certainly, I don't think many travel businesses have performed as well as we have over the last three years in terms of profitability, in terms of revenue growth, in terms of staff growth, in terms of caliber of people. So we've had a lot of lot of luck, and as you said, like. COVID was a huge disruption. Some bit, like if you, if you look at the people who we thought were the winners, the Zooms, the, the e-commerce businesses, all that kind of stuff have ended up being, in a way, the losers. Uh, the losers have sort of went back to where they were. And we really have benefited from COVID. It took a few years to recognise that, but we really have benefited. We forced the change in business that we, we probably would have got to eventually, but but hadn't. Uh, so it forced our hand. Um, and I, I love coming to work every day. Have an incredible team. Most people are in the office every day. In fact, we've run out of space in Sydney. We're desperately trying to get more space because we're out of some space because people can't get, can't get people away. So, which is, I think, a great, a great reflection on, on the closeness of the team and the fact that people love working on this product. You mentioned about building that A class team, right? And I've seen time and time again, I've been involved in a lot of uh, meetings and, and get togethers and also just building the team on our side to figure out. What does that A team look like? And not a lot of people understand that leadership is extremely important, especially as you start to build a business. And everything that comes down is sort of like this trickle down effect. But what was sort of the reasoning behind having that a bit of epiphany where you realize, okay, in order to for us to really succeed here, the team is where we need to be putting all of our focus in. And that obviously ties in with culture as well. What is your approach to building a good team and building 
a really good culture that, as you said, people want to go to work there. People enjoy the lifestyle and and the the perks and you know doing the doing good stuff uh, for a company and wanting to go to work every day. Um, how, how, what can you speak to that? Yeah, I think in terms of first the first part of the question, I think you always know you need a great team. When you bootstrap, you just can't afford it. It's part of the point mining. I think the benefit of me being out, out of the business for 18 months, I could look, it's much easier to look at the tin from the outside than the inside. Mm. So you can sort of see just how important good people are. Uh, I think, it, I think the team when it wasn't around did a, did a good job in many respects, but probably the team wasn't as good as it could have been in some, some places. Uh, and that was pretty easy to sort of fix. And we just realized how important it is to have great people. But then we also had probably more money and bandwidth to get great people. So it was kind of both, but yeah. It, we, we realized, it, it's a, the epiphany came, it was a slow-moving epiphany. It wasn't sort of overnight. We just realized, we, so when I came back, the, the first priority was just making sure the team's great. I got my former CPO back from Amazon, who was who moved over to Europe to run product in Amazon in Europe. So I brought him back, and he's built an incredible tech team. Tech team's grown from 30 to 130 in a couple of years, so more than 4x growth. So that's been a, a great uh, great result as part of that business. We've now got a one of the best tech teams, not the biggest, but one of the best, if not the best tech team in the country, where people come from Amazon, Atlassian, all these businesses and say we're better in terms of how the tech team runs, how we get stuff done, how we operate, the products we're building, we're leasing. So that's a huge, uh, incredible reflection on, on Shai and his team, Shai and Joss and all the team, that they do a fantastic job. Uh, we've got an amazing team of engineers, product design that's basically unparalleled. I think it's sort of Canva-like in terms of ability and uh Obviously, a much smaller team of 130. So that, that's super important and, and been huge for the business. In terms of culture, I don't, I don't think it's still football. I think how I, I, I like to hire, obviously need to hire smart people. That's that's a sort of given. But we really do hire for cultural fit and personality. Do we hire people who I want to be friends with? Oh, Scott Galloway talks about the most important thing that keeps people at work is having a friend at work. So we want to hire people we like. And also, the fish rots from the head. If you hire even super smart people who are bad people who aren't nice to work with or for, that just that just trickles through the business and it becomes like a cancer in the business. So we certainly, I look at the LT, our entire LT people I'm happily, I'd be happily be friends with and am friends with outside work. So it's, I think the hire people you like and respect, that is the core ingredient and they'll then hire people they like and respect. So it trickles down. You don't always get it right. I think you'll be quick to understand. The real hard one, obviously, is super talented team member, bad values or... or or bad person. So you want, you've got this really good person, he or her could be an incredible contributor personally, but it's hard to work with or hard to work for or is rude or, or dishonest or whatever it is. Uh, ultimately, we know we have to move that person on because we don't want a bad cultural fit in the business because it creates more problems than it solves. And it's a really hard decision in many cases because you see someone who's got a lot of skill, but ultimately we want people who have, who have skill but who, who are a great cultural fit, who are good people and who, who want to do the best thing for our customers. What's next for... Uh, luxury escapes now that you are sort of at that position where you're sort of humming along nice and smoothly, but at the same time, you want to continue to innovate, continue to grow the business. What's on the horizon for anything that you can share publicly? We've had a couple, couple of years of massive building in the business. So we went from a, a flash sales business, three years, effectively a, a pretty basic travel business to a business that's completely different now. So we're, we're much more tech driven, tech focused. Uh, our biggest part of the team is, is tech now, I think, or tech and contact center are pretty close. So we've really transitioned from a travel deals business to a travel technology business that, that aims at solving customer problems. So we've built a, a product called Trip Planner, which allows people to plan their trips. And not just that, there's plenty of trip planners out there. You can buy all everything, so you can buy it. 
your hotel, your cruise, your experience, your tour, whatever else from us. Or you buy from other people and just type it in and, and have one record. So yeah, you have your trip in your pocket. But more importantly, you can actually dynamically improve and build your trip while you're on it. So you go to travel agent, they'll print out a PDF for you. Great, fine. We'll not only create that, effectively, that, that dynamic PDF, it's online, it's in your app, it's, in your, it's on your mobile, you can pull it out any time. Not only do we create that, you can add to it while you're traveling. You can be on the, on the way to the airport and buy airport lounge access. You can go on the way to the hotel and order room service. You can do all this stuff. You can be sitting by the pool and book a hot air balloon ride. So you, and, we'll, and we're getting to the point where we're suggesting things to people. We're building out our personalization engine, which we've got a, a team in Israel who are building that. So we're now personalizing our communication with our customers, and that will just get better and better. So we see Trip Planner, and more importantly, the Connect the Trip as being a real, real key to our growth. Obviously, we're using... There's some great advances in AI. How do we use AI to help people plan trips? And then more importantly, how, how, do, how do we solve problems while they're on the trip? So we think because we've got all these products connected, no one, really no other business in the world has hotels, cruises, villas, tours, experiences, flights, all connected, all online, all bookable. This uh, Booking might have great hotels. Uh, Red Balloon's got experiences. Uh, Cruise Guru's got cruises. Tour Radar's got tours. So everybody does one thing. Nobody does everything. We, we do everything online. And you, or you can call our call centre 24-7, 365 days a week. We literally do tick every box for a customer. You can be on holiday. You want to book something else, call us. We'll, we'll, we'll sell it to you. We'll help you go straight your trip plan. So we want to make travel easy from the booking process to the travelling process. And our real mission is how do we use technology to make travel better? There's a lot of people, as much as people love travel, they put up with a lot of shit in that, in that trip. They put up with delayed flights. They put up with hotel check-in. All, all, a lot of stuff that's solvable through technology and not even complex technology, through fairly simple technology. And we're just looking to, to use tech to, along with our incredible product suite and incredible deals to create, which we create happiness and create memories and the best trips people have ever been on. That's why I've got an MPS of 71. That's why customers love referring us to their friends. But people go with groups of 20 and take every year they book a different luxury escape because they have such an incredible experience they can't get elsewhere. So we're going to keep growing that. We're almost to a billion dollars in turnover now. We're going to be a $10 billion plus turnover business that's global. At the moment, about 75 to 80% of our business is still Australia. We want to see that flip. So we're 25% less, less Australia, 75% global. US has been a great market for us. can grow a lot more. We've barely scratched the surface there. Uh, we think the US can be a multi-billion dollar business soon. UK, Germany, all incredible travel markets. Singapore, India, all great markets for us as well. New Zealand. We think we should, we've got a great brand in Australia, but frankly, people outside Australia haven't really heard of us. We think we can take this brand and this product to the world. We want to be a great Australian business. Travel businesses inherently scale globally. Look at the great travel businesses, the Airbnbs, the bookings, the Expedia, the sea trips, the flight centres. They're global businesses. Product, our product is global. We want to sell this great product to the world. And we think we can do We think we've got a team in place that can take this business to, from a billion dollar Australian business, billion dollar mostly Australian business, business to a $10 billion global business. We know we're not competing against Flighties and, and Australian business. We're competing against Booking.com and Airbnb. How do you approach expansion overseas? I think there's a lot of Australian businesses out there who are not just Australian, but anyone who just wants to expand internationally. There is also, there's friction, there's red tape, there's a lot of stuff that there's even sometimes regulatory hurdles. How do you approach the sort of the blueprint for, if you have any, to, to go overseas? And if there's anything that you can speak to that, because I think obviously Australia is a small market and we all acknowledge that. And travel obviously is a global market. So there's a there's an inefficiency there, and there's also a big delta in terms of the opportunity cost for not going overseas. 
So how would you approach that? How does Luxury Escapes approach that? Is it setting up an office? Is it building a team and then building that up slowly? If there's anything that you can speak to that will potentially help other companies, not just travel, but just maybe in the software B2B SaaS industry or who want to sort of grow their operations, uh, what sort of advice can you give to global expansion? We're not the experts yet on this. We're, we've got a couple of international business, but that's far from what we want to get to. So probably not the far from sort of authority on this matter. Uh, we're bringing in somebody who has a wealth of international experience who's run software business globally. So we, we certainly are bringing in that talent. But at the moment, it's been, like anything, a lot of test and learn. So we're, we're constantly learned. We, we, US is going best for us is by far our biggest international market uh, and we're constantly testing and learning and evolving and, and a big part of marketplace was marketplace is a much better business for international part of the problem with flash is it was really hard to get like domestic us deals for example domestic european deals. we have some but it's, it's only the bigger places and the well-known places so we had limited product that was applicable to the us and europe uh, we now have a lot more product with marketplace We've got thousands of products that's applicable so our, our product is a lot better for, for those markets uh, and we're just continually learning. I, I don't think this is a silver bullet. Uh, we've got some people on the ground in these regions. We'll probably put more on the ground as we scale. But at the moment, it's, it's largely done. Most of it's done out of Australia, but not all of it. We've got a team in Singapore, a team in the US, a team in the UK. There definitely are people globally. Uh, and we will continue, absolutely continue to, to grow those teams significantly. Uh, so we're, we're sort of excited about the prospects of international world. Almost everything we're building now is, is global products, not for Australia. So when we build a, building cruises, villas, all this stuff, experiences, this is as applicable for US customers as it is for Australian customers. We build a deposit product. It's applicable for overseas as Australia. So we think about ourselves as a global business. We still have a lot of work to do in that regard. And I'm probably not the person doling out advice. Look at the, the Canvas, the Atlassians. Those guys have done an incredible job internationally. They have been in international businesses from the get-go. They started as international businesses. We started as an Australian business. Our brand is far, far stronger here. Uh, than is elsewhere. Our ROAS is far, far stronger in Australia as a result of that. So we need to build our brand in places like the US and UK and Germany and great travel markets. It's a slow burn. We don't expect it to happen overnight. This is a 10-year process for us. We want to get there, but we know it's going to happen straight away. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit into sort of just going back to a lot of the, the journey that you went through in not just luxury escapes, but all the other businesses. And just sort of um, understand a little bit about the tough times. Um, and I think with any, building any business, you know, there's always going to be ups and downs. How do you, is there any hard times that you can, that you remember vividly? Um, were there times where you felt that this was going to go anywhere? But more importantly, how did you deal with them? I think, you know, failure is one thing, tough times is another, but if there's, obviously it's not always, um, a boulevard of green lights. It's definitely, you know, a lot of ambers and reds in between. So how do you sort of, can you allude to any particular moment um, in your career that you came across some of these uh, tough times and how you dealt with them? We've been lucky. We've had many tough times. There's two that jump out. The first one was maybe a couple of years after we started the backpack apartments business and we had a, a basically a fraudulent property manager who tried to kill the business. He lied. They lied to, they were a competitor of ours. They lied to a bunch of owners, tried to kill us. And we just, we're, we're, we're both, we don't 
just don't take it lying down. We fought back. We went to court, took them to court. We won in court uh, or in tribunal. Got a state of execution, pivoted the business to corporate model, and we were away. So that, that again, that bit like COVID, that crisis created a great, great opportunity. Uh, we're not easily a bit like we're not easily killed. We're a bit like Terminator. We will we'll fight back, and we absolutely fought back then. And it was for our, for our absolutely, but for that we wouldn't have bought those properties, wouldn't have made the million bucks, wouldn't have made us up what became luxury escape. So whilst that was a hard time, it probably but probably two three weeks, I wake up feeling like I wanted to vomit for a couple of, for both for a week, and we fought back hard and. That business still exists, unfortunately. They probably shouldn't be jail those guys, but not because it's how society works. But um, ultimately, that was a great benefit for us. We, we we fought hard and we knew we're not easy to kill. That was one time. Another time was 2012, so a couple of years after, again, a couple of years after we probably, probably no coincidence, a couple of years after we started the deals business, uh, we had a cash flow crunch. We bought a business, then we bought another business. And whilst our legacy business was actually performing really well, these other businesses we bought were losing more than we expected. And then we had another, another business with losing money. So we had to, as shareholders, we had to put some extra cash in the business. Um, and Mitch, one of our, 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 at the time, our main, our only real sales guy, managed to do an incredible deal with a round of bumping to somebody in, in a trade show, did a deal with them, made a couple hundred grand, got us over the hump. Then we did another deal, Jan made a couple hundred grand, we survived, but we could easily have not survived. It was touch and go there. And again, you wake up for a week or two feeling sick every morning, all this sort of time you worked. So 10 years of hard work building what looked, at the time people thought we had this incredible business. It was much smaller than we are now, but people thought we had this $50 million business, whatever it was, and that we were made, we were home, and how good are these guys? As it turned out, we almost weren't. Like in the end, we got through, probably wasn't that close, but there's definitely a little, there was a period we thought it was, uh, and we had to, we just, there was a time where I was calling everyone I knew, how do we get cash in? How do we survive? Just need to survive, get through this. And we found a way. Like Jeff Goff, Jeff Goldblum says in Jurassic Park, that great line, life, found, life finds a way. I've been great entrepreneurs, great founders, I'm sure that's why it's a great founder, but we're just gritty founders. We found a way. We weren't going to die. We were going to keep keep um, pounding out till we found a solution there. There was real value in that business. And that's happened. We had a business called My Table. I think we can talk about this. This is one of the business, Jeremy and I, our original, that restaurant booking business. We pivoted to a, a food delivery business. Again, lots of competition came. Uh, menu log was performing really well. We sold our business. Our business was basically going to die. It was worth. It was less than, less than worthless. We did have 700 restaurants signed up. So we had, a, we had an asset in there, a bit like Silicon Valley Bank. Had an asset in there, but we did an inherently worthless business. Hesse from Catch of the Day, Hesse and Gabby had bought this business called Eat Now. They had great SEO, but had no restaurants. So we knew we had value to them. Uh, and that, so they bought that business for not much. We'd put a million bucks in our business. We, I said to Hezzy, we put a million bucks in here. You've got restaurants. Why don't you just give us 10% of your business that they hadn't really paid much for? Pray to win-win. Managed to find a solution to that business. We would have had to shut it down. It would have cost us. We gave. We knew Hezzy and Gabby and Matt were doing incredible, and Nathan would do an incredible job. They did. They sold that business to Menulog. Menulog had sold for almost a billion dollars. So our business that was less than worthless, was killing us, was was going to cost us to shut down, we effectively sold for 20 million bucks. So we found a solution where none looked like it existed. Again, we had a business called Bookwell, again, with the same with Matt and Hezzy and the same guys. This was during COVID. It was a beauty bookings engine, a SaaS business for beauty um, places. COVID just destroyed that part of the business. Uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a disaster. Um, the guys did a great, as, as good a job they could, managed to sell it to the global leader. Um, so as a result of that, we were able to, to survive and we merged, we merged the business with, with the global leader and I'm sure that will have some great value in May. So we never say die. There have been some businesses we've shut down because they were just too small and valueless, but where there has been an asset there, 
and we know there's value, we'll, we'll do everything we can to, to find a solution to that problem. And usually there is a solution. If you try hard enough, there's almost always a solution. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the, the notion of just not giving up, I suppose, and it sounds kind of trite now, but obviously having tenacity and you mentioned waking up, right? Waking up, feeling sick or waking up, not feeling the greatest. Uh, those are tough times to go through. And eventually, as you mentioned, you know, things will work out and it's really the amount of energy and effort that you can put into the system. And those are really tough times. And I think that segues into sort of the tough times that a lot of startups are experiencing now, whether it be, you know, going, you know, going bust or, raising a lot of money, not being able to raise again, right? You mentioned there's in your social, there's an article you wrote about the Dom Holland story. And I want to put that into light because it's an interesting tale of a very ambitious entrepreneur doing, trying to do and build something amazing and then figuring out that it didn't work out in the end. What was your thoughts? Can you just give a bit of a spotlight on who Dom Holland was what he was trying to build, and what happened. Dom was a, a polarizing guy. He's had a couple of businesses. He had a business in Queensland when he was really young, that was effectively a, a tow truck marketplace. And that business, there's different versions, but his version anyway is the government didn't pay him for something. They eventually did, but didn't pay him, and he couldn't, couldn't continue the business, and the business went bankrupt. He then took those learnings and created a, a fintech business, essentially, that was trying to create effectively a, a a better checkout experience for customers. So working with with businesses. So, and Dom had just this incredible energy and, and optimism. And he, he, I have a podcast, uh, not different to yours. It's called From Zero. And he, came, and he asked to come on the show, and I interviewed him. I thought this guy's amazing with the optimism. Little did I know that when I interviewed him, he was his business was basically bankrupt. He had this incredible optimism. I think there could be a point where you're maybe too optimistic, but he had that just that incredible Silicon Valley optimism. Uh, and sadly, that business wasn't able to survive, didn't have much revenue, had incredibly high costs, wasn't able to raise and died. But he was just an in incredible character. I, I, I like him. Um, I think some, there's, there's some failure where people sell shares and make lots of money and shareholders lose. That, that's bad. And then there's other instances where the captain goes down the ship, they try as hard as they can. This was that case. Tom didn't make any, never sold a share, never made any money, did his best. Maybe he was slightly delusional in some ways, but, but delusional in a sort of, kind of positive way. Uh, and sadly, obviously, not for, for employees. Employees got jobs pretty quickly, I think. But for, for shareholders, they were, they were venture capitalists. They, they take that risk. They, it's part of the, part of the business. It wasn't public company invest. It wasn't mum and dad's that lost money. Uh, I think his, his story is a salient one, and one that we learn from, but but not necessarily a bad one. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like him. I, I'm always sort of biased towards entrepreneurs who go give it a crack. Uh, as long as they're not fraudulent or, or negligent or anything like that. I don't think he was. I think he's just a guy who, who did his best. His best wasn't good enough. It was a hard sector. Fintech's hard. Look at the heroes, the afterpays, the zips. These are worthless businesses now that were, people were fading them. Um, and Nick and Ed, super smart, sold out at the right time. Uh, smarter than it, smartest guys in the room for sure. But also those businesses were all worth zero pretty much uh, or will be. Uh, and so Dom was just unlucky. just didn't, didn't get it away, didn't get enough money. So... The difference between afterpay and, and uh, fast, I think it was what it was called, was, was, was just timing and, and smarts. And unfortunately, for Dom, he didn't quite have those smarts. But, um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll always back an entrepreneur giving it a go who, who does his best. And that was, I think that was the case there. Is there a lesson to be learned 
not just from his story, from all the countless stories on, you know, failure is part of the solution at some point. You know, you have to go through these um, so ups and downs, but also knowing that, you know, these things are not foolproof. And having the tenacity and the ambition to go out and do something for yourself, even if it doesn't work out, there's still a lot to gain from that. And you mentioned, obviously, he did everything that he could. He was able to build something, but didn't was able to take this to finality. But in that journey, I think you discover a lot about yourself. You discover a lot about who you are as a person, um, what your advantage, what your strengths and weaknesses are. You know, I assume you went through that yourself. Even though you've been markedly successful with all of these ventures that you've had, I would assume that there's a lot of stuff that you've been able. There's a lot of self reflection you've made done on you and and who you are as a, as a as a better person and hopefully come uh, better out of that. Yeah, often the difference success and failure is, is a bit of timing, a bit of luck. Um, I think what you said is is right there. Um, we've had a great run. Uh, we've been lucky in many cases. Yeah, we've done some hard stuff. We've been, we've been lucky more than more than not. I think that's. The, I think there's this. There's a bit of a trope that in the in the US, failure is celebrated. I don't think that's the case. I think failure in the US is tolerated. Uh, I think in Australia, it's, we're too harsh on failure. But it depends. I think it depends on the, the fact there's different types of failure. There's failure where you give it a crack and things you just have bad luck. And there's failure where, you, where you're just stupid or criminal or fraudulent. So and there's two different types of failures there. I'm going to distinguish between the two. I think broadly speaking, if I look at someone, if I've got two resumes, I'm hiring a senior person. If someone started their own business and given it a good crack and whatever, it hasn't worked. That's incredible. If I, if I see that, I'm, I'm always wanting to find someone who's done that versus someone who's worked at a bank their whole life. To me, that's uninteresting. I want to see someone who's got high risk tolerance, who's willing to create. Obviously, if they've run five businesses, they've all collapsed in a week. That's, that's not great. But if, you're, if you've done two or three businesses and they've lasted a couple of years and for whatever reason they haven't survived, that to me is a perfect person to hire. I've loved it. It's hard to hire them because they're usually starting the next business. But I think US has a similar attitude. Failure is tolerated. And it, and really, if you had a business, you've learned a lot of stuff. So I think the reason why US tolerates failure is they know that having a business doesn't mean you're guaranteed success the next one, but you've had, you've learned a lot. So uh, think of all the uh, Jeff Bezos, not Bezos, um, oh, this escapes me now, all the, all the guys who had businesses before they, before obviously, um, Zach had businesses before. Lots of people had businesses before they had their final business and they may not have worked, but, and, and literally the one, the example, I've completely slipped my mind now, but there have been several, several businesses that that's happened. Uh, and, and often that just the learnings you get is, is crucial. So I, I know when I've had, we had multiple, our, our apartments was a six year apprenticeship and that was a great apprenticeship. And whilst that wasn't in the end, yeah, we made some money out of it, didn't die or anything. We, the benefit we got from learnings far outweighed working in a bank for six years or whatever it was. So going out there and giving the crack and learning on the go trial and error is the best way to learn. So that sort of, uh, sort of uh, finishes off with the, the conversation about the advice that you would give to maybe your younger self or someone who is at the cusp of trying to do something. They could be in high school, they could be in uni, or college and and so I look you know I have this great idea but I'm scared like I don't know if this is going to work out um you know I I don't know if I'm going to lose a lot of money what would you say to someone like that who is at that stage where they're kind of young uh really um have 
sort of the oyster in the, the world is their oyster and but they just don't want to there's something that there's a lot of resistance how would you convince them to to sort of uh, take that next step i think being a founder is not for everyone i think there's there's some people who should be found and some people who shouldn't so i wouldn't be a blanket even though i'm a founder i don't say every single person should be a founder so i think that's that's sort of one thing but it depends on 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 is it a one-way or two-way door most things are two-way doors most things you can give a crack try like one issue is you, you don't get money back. So if you spend a, if you have a million bucks in the bank and you've you've sold your house, you don't get a million bucks if you lose it. So that is a bit of a one way door. But but within a business, there's ways to check how business is going. So you generally don't. The beauty of businesses these days, you don't you don't need to buy a build a factory and then make a widget and hopefully you can sell that widget. You can test and learn as you go. You can start really small, do the sales yourself, use AWS use some off-the-shelf software, whatever it is. You can start a business really inexpensively now. So the beauty, and you can test and learn. If you see you've got product market fit, then you can expand, then you can take risks, then you can raise money, spend your own money, whatever it is. The beauty is of business now is you can start slow and, and grow from there. You don't have to go 50 years ago. You couldn't, you didn't have that. Like, even 20 years ago, you had to use expensive servers. You, there was no, no AWS, no Google, no Heroku, whatever. Uh, so there's... There's no ability to mark, market on Google and Facebook where you market with a hundred bucks. You couldn't do that. You had to take out a newspaper ad if it cost 50 grand. So it's a lot easier to start a business now. It doesn't mean every single person should start a business, but if you've got a great idea, test and learn. It's no different to what we say to people in our business. You've got a great idea, test it. Let the customers tell, the customers will tell you if it's a good idea or not. And if there's product market fit, then you push harder. If there's not, then you, you do something else. Great advice. Uh, what is the best way for people to connect with you um, on social or what have you, um, you know, if they want to sort of uh, connect with, with you, Adam? Probably Twitter DMs is probably Twitter or LinkedIn. I get a lot of LinkedIn DMs, so sometimes I notice, sometimes I don't. Um, but, yeah, Twitter's probably the best or Insta um, or contact our. And you have, your, uh, you, have your, you have your podcast as well, right? Yeah, which is on temporary hiatus at the moment. We'll bring it back home for the next few months. But um, that's been good fun. So uh, info at fromzeropodcast.com as well will hit me. Sounds good. I'll put all the information in the show notes uh, for yeah, for all the listeners. Uh, thank you so much. It was great to have this conversation with you and also learn a bit more about the journey, the business building side of things, the mindset, um, and everything that it takes to sort of be a, a great founder and entrepreneur. So thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Barry. Pleasure to be on the show. Love your work. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.